0: Hello, this is OA on Air, the official podcast of O'Neill & Associates. I'm Kyanne Isaacson, welcome back. If you didn't know, Fan Expo Boston is coming to town. This is one of the biggest cultural events in the city every year. August 10th through 12th at the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center, more than 50,000 characters, fans, and movie lovers of all ages who love everything from comics to sci-fi to gaming will come together for the weekend to celebrate So with that in mind, OA on Air is bringing you something a little different this week. We're celebrating Fan Expo Boston with guests Kier D'Elia and Gary Lockwood from the movie 2001, A Space Odyssey. For those of you who don't know, this year marks the 50th anniversary of the movie. And in honor of this milestone, Fan Expo Boston is featuring the film and its stars. The movie has been called one of the most, if not the most, influential sci-fi movies of all time. We're excited to have them join us this week as Boston prepares for Fan Expo. So that means there's no 3-2-1 go, or two minutes with Tom, it's just a 2001 A Space Odyssey Takeover. But don't worry, we'll be back next week with our regularly scheduled programming. So here it is, 2001 A Space Odyssey Takeover. Kicking it off is an interview with Kier Delia, who played Dr. David Bowman in the movie.
1: I am Suzanne Morris, Vice President at O'Neill and Associates, and I have on the line with me today actor Kier DeLea. DeLea, who played the lead character Dr. David Bowman, will be appearing with his co-star Gary Lockwood at Fan Expo Boston from August 10th through 12th in celebration of the film. If you're interested in getting tickets to the event, which will be held at the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center, please visit uh, www.fanexpoboston.com. Welcome Kier DeLea. Thank you so much. So um, you probably are getting this question asked of you a lot, but I do think it's an interesting one, which is why do you think that the film 50 years later uh, resonates so much with so many people still?
2: Well, you know, I think the best way that I can answer that is to um, paraphrase one of the answers that Stanley Kubrick gave uh, regarding the the meaning of 2001 but I think it also helps explain why the popularity of the film has uh, stayed the way it has after so many years. He, he, he asked people a question. Um, when, you, when you hear a Beethoven symphony, how in words can you explain your response? Very difficult. And no two different people who hear a Beethoven symphony have exactly the same experience because everyone brings a different persona to that listening experience. And he, 2001 A Space Odyssey, in a sense, is a, a visual symphony. There is no, I don't think there's any one explanation. It's, it is filled with metaphor and... Um, and the perfect example uh, for that is that if you ask someone to describe their experience with hearing the Blue Danube, someone who's never seen 2001, may say, well, it reminds me of Vienna or a river. People who've seen 2001 A Space Odyssey will probably say, it reminds me of 2001 A right. Space Odyssey. Yep. Which, of those, which of those two people are correct? They both are. It's, it's almost... I remember at the world premiere, there was a nun who expressed the fact that she found the film one of the most religious experiences she'd ever had. We have atheists who also speak of the film as a profound film. Which one is correct? They both are. There is no one explanation, I don't think, and that's part of the magic.
1: I think that makes film. a lot of sense. I think you're right that because so much, because each person brings their individual experience and meaning to watching it, it probably... Stan, go ahead. Well, Stanley Kubrick never... Stanley Kubrick uh, purposely, I think,
2: did not over-explain the movie. Mm-hmm.
1: That's right. Yep. There
2: was a lot more explanation originally in the script and in the the, the book, 2001, The Space Odyssey, by... To see Clark, but Kubrick just didn't want to explain too much.
1: <laughs> yeah, and that probably does explain part of the reason why it continues to be debated today, because yes. people can can have those interpretations and those discussions about it, and of course that's going to continue to be more meaningful to them as viewers. And also,
2: he was such he was such a visual
1: mm-hmm.
2: artist. Yeah. I mean, when you realize there isn't one foot of film that was created by uh, computer-generated special effects. Everything you see in that film was done physically, and yet it still stands up.
1: Yeah, it absolutely does. I just rewatched it over the weekend, and um, it is extraordinary how much the special effects really do stand up um, and do not look dated at all and look very, you know, um, very natural. Um, So my next question is about a couple of the you know the film is bookended by these two kind of famously cryptic scenes and so i have a couple questions for you on that and the first is just as an actor when you receive a script that has some pretty cryptic uh, and ambiguous scenes how do you approach playing that do you fill in the story yourself did you talk to stanley kubrick um how does how does that process work for you
2: well um actually from a subjective point of view of the actor playing those roles, and the same for Gary Lockwood's character, Frank Poole, um, there wasn't very much cryptic about it because these were two men on a mission. And purposely, we did, of course, discuss the, uh, the, the details with Stanley Kubrick and before we ever started filming, and we came up with the fact that both these characters probably had double doctorates in various scientific subjects, and uh, that they would have been chosen, uh, they would have been watched as young teenagers, and sort of ended up being astronauts because they had certain kind of psychological profiles that uh, would, that the, the kind of events that would cause you and I to go screening out of door mm-hmm. would just be an <laughs> eyebrow. That they had very steady psychological profiles. And also, you know, it's often spoken about that the fact that there's just so little dialogue. Well, there's so little dialogue because when we pick up on their story, they've been at, in space for months. Mm-hmm. So it's down to the routine they've been doing every day. And they talk, where did you go to school? Oh, I went to wherever. Oh, really? What part of the country?
1: it's all been said. They're right, they all know, they or, know each other very well at they that They know point. each
2: other so well, yeah. so they're just going through the daily routine until things start going wrong. And that is like any drama, you know, you start dealing with the drama and the uh, of, of of the events that begin to take place when Hal kind of seems to go crazy. And uh, But that is like any kind of drama that you, you have. I mean, that, that kind of, Tension you can find in a Western or in a war film. I mean, so it's it's a subjective experience being an actor in a film like that. The 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 magic of the film was totally in the hands of the genius of Stanley Kubrick, and he was a genius. I mean, you just could you were just aware every moment that you were in the presence of that kind of genius, and yet at the same time, he was very approachable. I Mm -hmm. mean, I loved every minute of working with him. You know, people always ask, you know, what was it like to work with Stanley Kubrick? I'm asked that question all the time, and I think I've sort of answered it. It was a wonderful experience. And he was, you could, you never had to be shy of expressing an idea. It Mm -hmm. didn't mean it would end up in the film. But there are two, there are only two specific ideas that I can absolutely say that we came up with, that Gary and I came up with, which ended up in the film. One was, it was Gary Lockwood's idea. To have Hal read our lips.
1: Oh no, kidding! Wow.
2: And and the other thing, and Stanley was open to it. He said, That's "Ended great. up in the film." And mine was a relatively minor suggestion, and that is, in the in that strange room at the end, where um, my character ages and finally till it till the death, through going through the experience of death and ends up the fetus. Um, when I'm the one of the older versions of myself sitting at a table eating, um, I knock a glass off onto the floor. And reading I, that, what I asked, I said, to "Sandy, you know, in the scene, each of the ver- each younger version senses something, and turns his head. And what he senses, we cut." the camera to what it is he senses and sees, which is an older version of himself. We never go back to seeing the reaction of the younger version. We just get to the older version. And that happens a couple of times before you come to the scene where I'm sitting at that table eating. And I just said to Stanley, rather than just kind of turning my head the way I've done so far, let me have a slightly different way of sensing the next oldest version, which is the one on the, on the bed. So I said, let me knock the glass onto the floor. And in bending over, I suddenly sense something and I look. And then you cut to the oldest version on the bed reaching up to the monolith.
1: Huh. That's interesting because I do think, because as a viewer, when you're watching that scene, initially you're not sort of not knowing what's happening. And I do think that that scene with the glass... Becomes an important part of you as a viewer understanding what's happening.
2: Well, I think you're right. I think mean, that's the kind of the ma- Again, you know, um, the fact that I have this idea of being a different way, it's, it's not very interesting. I think whatever people I think may read into the significance, and again, it's filled with many moments like that throughout the film where you could come up with your own explanation. I mean, again, what does that room represent? Well, I think what it represents is, you know, when we capture a wild animal like a polar bear, we put him in a cage, and we we try to make him feel a little at home by kind of putting an artificial pool and an artificial cave for him to withdraw into. Well, the the the, the passing, the alien presence. Unfortunately, Kubrick never tried to show a bug-eyed monster representing that. We only see the monolith an expression, but is not the actual alien, this passing intelligence, which passed by Earth and left that monolith, you know, back at the time of a primitive man, were millions of years in advance uh, of humankind. So they had the ability, this is my interpretation, of instantly reading a brain, and maybe one day I walked through the, my character walked through the Louvre Museum or any museum and saw these paintings on the wall. And and, and immediately the passing intelligence of the aliens said, ah, habitat. So that, that that room is perhaps inside my brain, that it isn't a literal room, that it's a metaphor for something.
1: Huh, interesting. Well, so... Um, let's talk a little bit about Fan Expo Boston. You're going to be here from August 10th through 12th, um, mm-hmm. and I'm interested to know what the fan convention experience is like from your end.
2: Well, I, you know, I'm sure it's going to be a little like, you know, I recently the uh, appeared uh, a few weeks ago in Boston at the Coolidge Corner Theater in Brookline, where they showed the brand new remastered, print, which is, by the way, beyond, it's even more exciting than the first print 50 years ago. That's great. I, I, it's extra. You know, um, Christopher Nolan uh, has done a masterful job uh, in in being very responsible for the, the whole process of remastering it. And I was amazed at how many people, number one, <laughs> had never seen the film, or, or how many people had only seen it on a small screen because... Seeing this, if, if any film was meant to be, see, be seen on a large screen, this was it. It was made to be seen on a giant screen. It's a different experience. You see things you never noticed before when you uh, when you see it on a small screen. So the the the, uh, the reaction from the audience was extraordinary, and I find the same thing with at at, at expos such as the Pan Expo, and I've done Comic Con, which I'll be doing here in... in in San Diego is that uh, uh, the age of the fans I mean 75% of the fans who love this film weren't born which again again is a tribute to the genius of Stanley Kubrick that this film still stands up the way it does today yeah
1: absolutely so is there anything you'd like to add?
2: no except for those of you in Boston who are uh, listening to this podcast I look forward to meeting you all and uh, come see us at Fan Expo. Looking forward to it.
1: Absolutely. We'll be there. Keir DeLea, thank you so much. This was a really interesting conversation.
2: Thank you. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
1: That's all for my interview with Keir DeLea. If you would like to hear the full unedited version, head on over to the OA on Air SoundCloud, where you can listen to it as an OA on Air Extra.
0: Thanks to Kiera for joining us. Up next, Gary Lockwood, better known as Dr. Frank Poole.
1: Gary Lockwood, welcome.
2: Well, thank you very much. I look forward to being in
3: Boston. I can get some great seafood.
1: Well, we're looking forward to having you. Um, So... 2001 is fam- is famous for being a movie that is really open to many interpretations, particularly about the meaning of the monolith or the relationship between the monolith and the HAL 9000 computer. Do you have any interpretations as to why the events in the movie happen the way they do?
3: Well, you know, it's not that complicated a question. Everybody seems to make something out of 2001. I mean, the monolith is to me is sort of like an allegory, uh, you know, like the white whale in Moby Dick. But he's uh, – the monolith is a um, – I don't know, it's a symbol of extraterrestrial life. And I think it was a good choice on Kubrick's part and Arthur's part, primarily Kubrick, uh, to make it, you know, something substantial like a block of wood painted black and that way every time you thought about the extraterrestrials you weren't thinking about some kind of bug-like creature or something so i think it was a very good idea to to go with some kind of neutral object to look at that's my opinion
1: that's an interesting point yeah okay i agree um so I actually rewatched the movie over the weekend and you know so the first scene that we really see you in is Dr. Frank Poole is run, running or getting exercise around the station. So I have a couple questions on that. One of which is just how was that filmed? I mean the film is 1968. It's before a lot of the uh, the special effects that we see now. So I was really and, but they really hold up. And so I was really interested in knowing how that was actually filmed.
3: Well actually it's not that complicated if you think about a squirrel in a cage running on a wheel uh, our our the centrifuge was about sixty five feet high. It was built by vickers Aircraft in the north of England and it was built in two halves and it had a it all spun around a neutral hub and on either side of the two halves of the wheel um We're strapped many television things and, you know, so that, so that the 70 millimeter film could uh, register all the computer, computer screens running the ship. Now, how they achieved the thing of me running upside down and all that inside, there were different things depending on the shot. If, um, because it was built in two halves, it had a very thin uh, camera mount that moved, that that came up between the two halves. And so if you, uh, so for example, had the camera mount um, sort of, you know, it's hard to explain in a way. For example, if if it looked like I was running upside down, that would be where there would be a fixed camera mm-hmm. that would move, And go, and it would look like I was running upside down where I was a squirrel in a cage remaining in the bottom of the wheel. Other shots where you see my face, that is just the camera crew running like hell backward trying to maintain a position, and I'm running sort of slightly downhill because gravity wanted to push a spoke to the bottom of the wheel. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, absolutely if you saw my face running um shadow boxing etc uh that was just a camera crew inside running backward and I'm I'm running down a little section of the wheel trying to act like I'm on the you know running upside down so call it, that was call a uh, that wasn't my point of view that was just a uh, I won't use movie talk to you but uh that was just a shot, an establishing shot. So I, I think there's like maybe five or six different shots of me running. And as far as the final editing process, uh, I don't remember exactly which ones were used, even though I've seen the movie 20 times. Well, so, yeah.
1: So my second <laughs> question- I mean,
3: I've, I've talked about this movie for 30 years.
1: I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, my second question on that is in terms of preparing for the role. Um, obviously, it came out the year b- before the moon landing, um, but there were astronauts around at the time, as there are now. Did you, did you talk to any astronauts, or did you read about their training, or was it more of a naturalistic? You know, how did you prepare for the role?
3: Well, I met Neil, and I met um, uh, the other guy. Whom I don't get along very well with, but the, I met him, you know, Buzz. And, oh, uh, okay, yeah. Well, you know, I shouldn't have said that, but <laughs> we can edit it out if you'd like, it's fine. <laughs> a rea- no, it's all right, it's a reality that's documented. Uh, he and I didn't get along too well, but the I met them well after, you know, when I was traveling around the country. Selling two thousand and one, and Kira and I did different cities. Okay, now in retrospect, your original question was what was what was your original question? My original episode? question
1: is, did did you prepare in any special way for the role in terms of ah, understanding the life of exactly
3: Manhattan. that? That is a very simple answer. Kubrick gave us BIOS, which had uh, all kinds of information on astronauts and their training. And uh, I was supposed to have, you know, a doc, have a doctorate in physics. And so when Kier DeLay turns to me and says, Frank, I'm having trouble with uh, D transmitter and C pod. Could you have a look at it? I was Mr. Fix-It, like a mm-hmm. mechanic. Mm-hmm. And so each of us kind of had different duties. And um, there, there are a lot of shots from 2001 that you never saw that were so incredibly brilliant. But in the final selection, because I stayed friendly with Kubrick for many years after, uh, we had a lot of time to shoot Snooker and talk about the movie at different times later. But uh, when the movie first came out, it was not very well accepted for about a week or so. All the critics, particularly the ones in New York City, didn't like it. And... uh, you know, so we were not received very well, but as the momentum built and then it became the greatest, the ultimate trip, everything changed on how it was sold, and then it just ran away.
1: Well, and here we are 50 years later still talking about it, which is a, a testimony just, to a, what a great film it is.
3: I can tell you one thing. Yeah. If I'm with a, of course, most of my actor peers are dead now, but. If I'm in a room with different actors, uh, on occasion, because I live in Malibu, it'll happen. You know, you walk into a restaurant, and there's other ones there. Inevitably, somebody will ask me about Stanley Kubrick and 2001. It's a, uh, it's an inner industry, humongous mega hit.
1: So. Um you will be at fan expo boston from august 10th through 12th and we were just talking about fans that's obviously a fan convention what is the fan convention experience like from your end of things well
3: you know it's a very uh, i can i i have again a kind of a multiple answer because there isn't uh, isn't any one given point i mean uh, one of the things that's a lot of fun is that I see some acting pals that I've worked with. Of course, now at 81, a lot of them are gone, but I used to see them. <laughs> and, um, uh, you know, most of them have um, passed on, but it's it's also fun to hear the different fans' observation of 2001. I mean, I've really heard some unbelievably unique stories on on people seeing it for the first time i mean i hear things like you know people dropped acid and walked through the screen and all kinds of crazy things one guy told me that he lived in texas and he uh, he traveled up to uh, denver to see the movie because it was in 70 mil theaters not everywhere it wasn't playing everywhere and uh, he took some LSD with him, and he said he, he they got up there and they were told to take this stuff and then go see the movie. So they took the LSD and they got in the movie, and he said all of a sudden there were these monkeys and everything. He said, I had no damn idea what the <laughs> hell I'd just seen. He said, the audience took us down and out through the lower right doors, and he said, we walk out into uh, – bright sunshine and he said I turned to my friend I said let's just go right back in there and see that <laughs> yeah <laughs> I've really heard some incredibly funny I can stories. imagine I have I, on both sides not only sure. Star Trek but it's on 2001 as well I mean none of us were very religious who made the movie and and when we premiered in Washington no one liked it in New York no one liked it in LA I remember We did three premieres in three nights and I'm standing at the intermission having a drink and people like Warren Beatty and different, you know, guys that I knew, I'd done a movie with Warren, came up and just looked at me and said, you're lucky. They were aware of the long, long, long sort of continual esteem of what they had been watching. And so if there's anything about 2001, as I say, we're talking about it now. And um, I think they'll be talking about it 100 years from now.
1: I think that's probably right. Gary Lockwood, thank you so much. This has been a really, uh, really entertaining interview. And thank you for joining us today.
3: All right, Suzanne, thank you very much. And maybe I'll see you out there. At- you
1: will. You'll see me at the, uh, at the Fan Expo Boston. Thanks so much.
3: Okay, come and say hello. Thank I you. Will.
1: Bye-bye.
2: Bye.
0: Thanks again to our special guests, Kier D'Elia and Gary Lockwood for joining us this week. You can catch them both at Fan Expo Boston, August 10th through 12th at the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center in the Seaport. To get tickets to the Fan Expo, go to fanexpoboston.com. That's it for this week's episode of OA on Air. Now that you've listened, don't forget to subscribe. You can find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, our website, and anywhere you listen to podcasts. Talk to you next week.